Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is James. I am one of the pastors here. If I have not had the chance to, to get to know you, please know that I would love to get a chance to do that. It is, it's our hope that, that this church is a, a church where we are known and able to know one another. And uh, I would love to, to be able to get to know you. Um, I want to invite you to join me. We are looking this morning to John chapter 12. We're picking up in the second half of verse 36, and we're going to look through the end of chapter 12 into verse 50. Um, we're picking up where we left off, and, and last week we saw Jesus ending this text by inviting us to walk in the light while we still can, implying that the light uh, and Him as the light would be going away. That happens here in this passage. There's a bit of a transition taking place here. Jesus' public ministry with the Jews has, has ended. He is transitioning. In the next five chapters, he's going to be focusing his attention exclusively on equipping the disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. And so we see that as he goes away, there will be some instruction, some words of Jesus in verses 44 through 50, but we need to understand that as the Apostle John sort of thematically summarizing all of this prior public ministry and, and preparing us for this transition uh, where we'll see in chapter tw uh, 13. This... Um, Sermons may be going to seem a little bit more teachy uh, than normal. The, there's going to be some hard things. There's some beautiful truths we'll see, but there's some hard, um, hard things, hard to understand uh, truths. We believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, so we're going to look to Isaiah. We're going to look to Romans to, to see how the Scripture is going to inform what we have this morning. And now, uh, let us turn to the inerrant and infallible Word of God. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And, whenever, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. 
The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would, you would give us the presence of your Spirit to guide us into all truth, and that in the truth of Jesus Christ we would find life. This is, this is your sovereign work. Would you do it in us today for your glory and for our good? In Christ's name, amen. So normally I, um, I try to plan out the sermon series, and so I'll, I'll look out several months in advance and do a, uh, a read-through of the text, to divide it out into the different um, passages to preach. As I do so, I'll, I'll, I'll do a first run at a title, a couple of little uh, summary points of what's going on in that, that text, and when I did that, Looking out to, to this text, I, I just scribbled in a little title, Unbelief and Belief. Because at first glance, that's what I thought was the main point of just contrasting unbelief and belief. And while I do believe that this text clearly provides a contrast between unbelief and belief, as I began to look more deeply over the course of this week, I saw that Maybe there's a more fundamental truth that we need to understand in this text. In addition to the contrast between unbelief and belief, we need to see the contrast of glory. And the glory that fuels our unbelief or that fuels our belief. So I ask you, how do you define glory? Do you define glory in in the context of of achievement and in context of, of uh, affirmation, acclaim, or, or do you define glory in the context of weightiness, of substance? And where does that glory come from? Does it come from the things we do? Does it come from beauty? Does it, does it come from earthly things, or, or might it come from somewhere else? It begs the question, whose standard are we measuring glory by and whose glory are we seeking? You might wonder why all of this talk of glory, but I believe that verse 41 in this text sort of opens up something that we need to understand in all of this talk about belief and unbelief. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. Well, where did he see this glory and what was this glory that Isaiah saw? I believe we look back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we see uh, or are told the vision of glory that that Isaiah saw. There in in Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 5, we read these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This King, this Lord of hosts that Isaiah saw, and in Isaiah chapter 6, John 12 is telling us, is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ in His glory, sitting on the throne, Isaiah saw this vision. It is a vision of glory that that serves as a backdrop behind this whole discussion of unbelief and belief. And so with that backdrop, we, we begin by seeing that John tells us that they didn't believe. Verse 37, though they had seen so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. They'd seen, they had heard, and yet they didn't believe. Romans 10, 17. I told you we're going to look to Scripture to interpret Scripture. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. They had most certainly heard the Word of Christ. They had seen the miracles that He had performed, but they didn't believe. Why not? Why, when all that they had seen and all that they had heard, did they not believe? They they were listening. They were looking through a certain filter. It's the filter of self. The filter of self-glory. We are tempted. We're not tempted. We do the very same thing. We see what we want to see. We hear what, what we want to hear was true of them and Jesus's day and the text tells us clearly that they did not believe more on that in a moment but as the text moves forward we see not only did they not believe but they wouldn't believe verse 42 and 43 nevertheless many even of the authorities believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This belief that verse 42 talks about, is that a saving belief? We wonder, is is it showing that some didn't and some did? I, I don't think so. Why not? Well, if we look to James chapter 2, James would describe the kind of belief that saves. And as James describes it, he, he calls it a, a belief that is accompanied by works. In other words, the works don't save, but the works attest to a type of belief, a belief in action, a belief that is transforming our lives. That is the kind of belief that saves. And so back to Romans, Romans chapter 10 would describe this type of of belief as a belief that confesses. Romans 10 verses 8 through 10 says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses 
and is saved. He's not saying that the act of verbalizing it saves us, but there is a connection between what we believe and what we profess, what we believe and what we do. But here, they weren't doing. They weren't confessing. Why? They were looking for the glory that comes from man. It's the the way that we're sometimes tempted to stick our toes in the water. We want to feel it. We want a little experience, but we're not ready to dive in head first. We, we want a little sampling, but we don't want all. Because we know if we dive in, it's going to require something of us. It's going to require a commitment. The people there believed, but they wouldn't confess because they didn't want to get thrown out of the temple. They sought self-glory, and that was a true desire. I told you that this might be a little teachy. If I were in one of the Sunday school rooms and I had a whiteboard behind me, I, I would draw this out for us. In the center of that whiteboard, I would, I would draw the word hearing. But on either end of hearing, I would write another word. On one end, receiving. On another end, rejecting. You see, hearing calls for a response. And that response is either going to be a response of receiving that word that we have heard, or it's going to be a response of rejecting that word that we heard. Between those uh, two ends, there would be an arrow. That arrow is the fuel that, that, that drives the way we respond to the word. The, the arrow moving from hearing to rejecting. The circle with a vision of self-glory. When we hear the word and desire the glory of self, we reject the word of Christ. They wouldn't believe. Because they had a different desire. So in this opening, they, they didn't believe. They wouldn't believe, but it also tells us that they couldn't believe. The sovereignty of God is all over this text. The sovereignty of God is there, and we see it when we, when we uh, read words like blinded and, and hardened. We get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable with the sovereignty of God, even though the text is clear, crystal clear in the sovereignty of God over belief. Why do we get uncomfortable with that? Because oftentimes we want the God who would serve our needs. We, we don't want to bow down to God. We want a God who will bow to our demands, who will serve us, who will be fair, and we get to be the ones who define the standards of fairness. But remember Isaiah 6. Isaiah was given a gift. What was Isaiah's gift in Isaiah 6? He was given a vision, and it was a reorienting vision. Isaiah came to this vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, and he saw true glory. And in the midst of true glory, there was no place for a God who would bow down to Isaiah. Isaiah knew that he was a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. 
He knew in this vision of glory that he must seek the glory of God and the glory of God alone. John puts that vision along with these two citations from Isaiah. Showing glory as the backdrop of belief. Isaiah, or in verse 38, we're citing Isaiah 53.1. As if uh, we are to say, Lord, they didn't believe. They don't believe. But, oh yeah, you told us that they wouldn't. And then in verse 40, he cites Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 10, to say they can't believe because you hardened them against that belief. But again, we want to ask the question, why? Why would the Lord harden them? And there's a lot that's behind our why. There's a lot behind us wanting to ask that question. But what we've got to be careful of is that the God's hardening does not mean that these good people humbly believed and the Lord snatched that belief out of their hand. This hardening does not mean that they wanted Jesus, but God said, no, you can't. I'm going to harden you against that. No. Instead, He's telling us that God hardened an already hard heart. We're going to see this whole discussion around belief in the context of sovereignty and glory, and know that they didn't believe because they did not want to believe. Our default position is unbelief. That's our default position. We come to this, this interaction with, with Jesus, with, with hearts that, that seek self and not Christ. They didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. They wanted instead the glory that comes from man, the text makes that crystal clear. And so ultimately, God gave them what they wanted. That's the hardening that is taking place here, cementing the path that they were already following. It's a picture of what happens in, in Romans 1. When, when in Romans 1, the Word is explaining all of this. You see, the Lord reveals Himself. To us, all can see His glory. Romans 1 speaks of that glory and the revelation of the glory in terms of creation. God reveals to us His invisible attributes. His, his divine nature, His eternal power. And it's all for us to see as we look at the glory of creation. But sinful man suppresses that truth because sinful man knows that if there is a God, then I must submit to Him. And so we desire self, we suppress that truth of the knowledge of God, and ultimately, as Romans 1 describes it, God gives us over to our lusts. He gives us over to what we want. That is the hardening that we read about here in John chapter 12. But yet we ask, what, what, what about this lest they may see? What's going on there in, in verse 40? Well, First of all, go back to the vision of glory. Isaiah asked no such questions because Isaiah saw the picture of God as God. He saw a reorienting picture of glory. I also want you to understand something here. The Lord is doing this hardening because there is no place in the kingdom of God for knowing the right answer in our heads 
but having a heart that is far from the Lord. And so to prevent knowing the answer in our head, but having a heart that is far from us, the Lord gives us over to the lusts of our hearts. You ever been tempted to cheat on a test? You ever cheated on a test? Why do we do that? What's the purpose behind cheating? Well, we want to score, right? We want a good score on the test. But we really don't want to go to the work of gaining the knowledge. We, we don't want the process of being grown in knowledge. We just want the score on the test. And here's the thing. A loving teacher wouldn't allow that. A loving teacher cares nothing about the score on the test. The loving teacher is concerned about this process of transformation and knowledge. The Lord is not concerned about us getting the right answer on the test. The Lord is calling for our hearts. We've got to see this today. This, this whole discussion, it's not merely about separating the non-Christian from the Christian. I believe and celebrate the fact that in this room there are both. You're welcome here if you are confessing Christ or if you are not. But I want you to see that this, this discussion of glory and belief has a particular call for the Christian. The one who does believe, but there are areas of our lives where we struggle with belief. And so I ask you, as you consider this connection between belief and glory and sovereignty, to to be awakened to it all and, and to consider what are the areas of your lives where you are seeking the glory of man rather than the glory of God, where you have settled for something lesser. Could it be a, a focus on, on the applause of man? Could it be living for the like on your social media post? Could it be settling for the lust of your passions, thinking that in the satisfaction of that passion you might find life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, talks about this settling in terms of settling for making mud pies in the slum rather than going off to the sea for a holiday. What he's saying is that there is a greater glory, a more glorious glory for us. And when we settle for the glory of man, we, we settle for a cheap imitation. And for the Christian, we've got to consider those areas in our lives where we have settled. We've got to consider them and confess them before the Lord. It's a process of repenting of them and returning to Jesus. Returning to intimacy. Returning to the greater, more glorious glory. Listen, all of us, all of us are inclined toward self. And so this text presents a clear and present warning. If you persist in the pursuit of self, you persist at your own peril. Because God ultimately hardens by giving us more of what we wanted. That's what's going on in this discussion of unbelief. And so in the midst of that, Jesus cries out with a better word. A better word of a more beautiful vision. Verses 44 through 50 speak of belief and seeing the true glory of Christ. Back to our, our fictional whiteboard. I, I, I wrote, if you recall, uh, the word hearing. 
in the middle of that whiteboard. And, and on, on one side of that, I, I, I wrote rejecting. And what drives us to reject the word that we hear is this pursuit of the glory of Christ. But opposite rejection, there is another word. Receiving. Receiving. And the fuel behind our receiving the word of Christ is a vision of the glory of Christ. Are you seeking the glory of self or are you seeking the glory of Christ? In this text, Jesus is giving us a vision of a more glorious glory. He does so, I believe, in three ways. The first way he speaks of this glory is, is he speaks of it in terms of his union with the Father. This is a weightiness. Glory means weight. Glory means substance. And Jesus speaks of the weightiness of glory here in, in verses 44 and 45 in terms of his union with the Father. In verse 44, he says that if you believe in me, you've believed in the Father. Jesus is not by himself off doing his own thing. He's speaking, teaching, coming in union with the Father. If you believe in him, you believe also in the one who sent him. Verse 45, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is a, this is a weightiness of union. This is the glory that Jesus speaks of. That's the first way in which he describes the, the more glorious glory here. But he goes on to speak of glory in terms of light. He does so by providing a contrast between the light and the darkness. And to date, darkness is never won over light. Light always pushes back the darkness. Jesus is the light, and he speaks of the glory of the light in terms of enabling sight, and in terms of drawing us in. So in verse 46, he speaks of the radiant splendor of this light in terms that is unmistakable. So I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We're drawn to the light when we see its radiance. And thirdly, Jesus speaks of glory here in terms of the word. Jesus has proclaimed a timeless, unchangeable word. The, the text here speaks of the signs. The signs of the miracles that he did. Those signs attested to the word. You have heard the word today. You heard the word of the gospel today, and you hear it in the context of union. Jesus speaks the word that is given to him by the Father. It is an authoritative word. So in the context of the glorious word, Jesus speaks of judgment. But as he does so, he says something interesting. He says that he doesn't come to judge. I told you this is a bit of a thematic summary of the, the whole of his public ministry. If you recall in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus says he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world because the world already stood condemned. What he's saying here is that he doesn't have to judge because the world is already judged according to our sin. Jesus doesn't have to declare that judgment. The condemnation already exists. And so 
What about this discussion of the word of truth and the judgment that it will provide? Let me illustrate it this way. If you, if you were to imagine uh, in your mind a, uh, a fictional courtroom and there is a defendant there who has been accused of, of lying and that defendant is, is there on the, on the witness stand and with a flair for the dramatic as any good prosecuting attorney would have, is questioning this, this defendant, and, and at just the right moment, he presents a, an audio recording. An audio recording that catches the liar in the, in the act of lying. Now, when was that liar guilty? When... When the recording was presented, or when they first lied. It was the sin that brought about the condemnation. The word merely served as the judge to point back to the sin that had already been committed. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And when Jesus returns, there will be no dispute as to the truth of his word. When Jesus returns in glory, His Word will be authenticated for all the world to see. And that Word of truth will be the judge. Sinners will be condemned, not because of Jesus, but the sinners will be condemned because of sin. And their judgment will be sealed based on how they respond to the Word. It's a terrifying prospect because you and I, everyone in here know this, that none of us are innocent. Again, the Word interprets the Word. And Romans 3 tells us that none are righteous, no, not one. That all have turned aside from God and sought their own way, have sought their own glory. And so the question that must be on all of our lips is this. Where then is our hope? If we're all guilty, where is our hope? It is in our glorious and sovereign God. Because though He hardens some by giving them what they want for His beloved, for His elect, not my words, the words of Scripture, for those whom He has foreknown, He has sovereignly changed the course. By giving them a new heart, and through the new heart, giving them a new vision, a new vision of glory. This is the glory of grace, that God does it. I've used the word sovereign much through this sermon, and some of us struggle with that word, so let's try a different word. How about it? The different word that I'd like to throw out to you is this. God is supernatural. This is a supernatural word by which we are called to a supernatural faith. Friends, Christianity is not some natural religion. Christianity is not some moral, ethical way of living a natural life. It is supernatural. And I know that some of us struggle with that, but you've got to know that this is where the hope lies. That God supernaturally changes hearts by giving supernatural faith. This is why we pray. If God were not sovereign, if God were not imparting a supernatural faith, prayer would make no sense. Our only prayer would be for wisdom, for us to get it right. 
we pray that God would supernaturally move by His Spirit to change our unbelief into belief. This week, some of our young people and some of the chaperones went to RYM camp. As they prepared to leave last weekend, Anna and I sat down together to pray, and we prayed for a supernatural movement of the Spirit of God at that camp. Because as much, as much as they need some good teaching so they can think about some good ways to live, the kids and the adults need to move in the Spirit. To move in supernatural ways. Far too often we approach ministry pragmatically. If I get it in the right order, if I do the right things, if I provide the right program, then the people will respond. But our God, our God moves in supernatural ways to bring the dead to life. And here's the incredible truth of this text. He does so supernaturally by giving us a more beautiful vision of glory. Not a vision of glory that is some picture protected on a wall. What is, if I were to ask you what is the most glorious work of art in all of history, what would you say? The Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is glorious, but but it sits on a wall protected in the Louvre in Paris. And it's encased in a climate-controlled encasement with a bulletproof glass outer shell and then a rail around it so that you can't even touch it. It is glory, but it is detached glory. That is not the vision of glory we have in the Scripture of Jesus. It is also not a vision of glory that reduces the Christian faith to a set of moral ethical codes. Nor is it a vision of glory that is a concept of grace reduced to knowing the right answer on the test. The vision of glory given to us supernaturally by God, presented to us in this Word, is a vision of the person of Jesus Christ. It's a call to know Him intimately. That is what receiving is. It's intimate knowledge, relationship. And Jesus says as much in verse 50 as He speaks of the commandments, not in the context of moral ethical codes for us to obey. He says that the commandment is eternal life. Scripture interprets Scripture. Later in John 17, Jesus will tell us that eternal life is knowing Him. Intimate, eternal relationship with Him. But to know Him, we've got to see the complete picture of His glory. The full picture that Isaiah saw. We saw earlier, in, or heard earlier in Isaiah 6, this, this beautiful, glorious vision of Jesus high and lifted up on the throne that Isaiah saw. And how did Isaiah respond? Woe is me. I've got no place in this room because I am a man of unclean lips. Translated, I'm a sinner. And I'm here in the presence of a holy God. And so there, if we'd have read the next two verses of Isaiah 6, we would have seen that the king sent an angel with the burning coal to touch his lips to make atonement. But that atonement prefigured another atonement. An atonement that Isaiah would see later in his prophecy. You see, he has one picture of glory in Isaiah 6, but it is completed by another picture that he presents in Isaiah 53. 
There in Isaiah 53, he saw the picture of the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. But he saw him in his incarnation. It wasn't Jesus lifted up on a throne. It was a picture of the suffering servant. There's one citation in this text from Isaiah 6, but there's another from Isaiah 53. That picture of the suffering servant where the suffering servant was marred beyond human semblance. Where the suffering servant was pierced. He was stricken. He was lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. And it was all the sovereign will of God to do this. This is the picture that Isaiah saw. The picture of the completeness of the glory of Christ that you and I need to see. So then Isaiah 53, that beautiful, glorious Old Testament presentation of the gospel, Isaiah would say in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds. We are healed. This is the complete and full picture of glory that our God supernaturally presents to us and places in our hearts. And it's from His fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. Do you see it? Do you see this glory? Do you see Christ? Lifted up on his throne. Do you see Christ lifted up on the cross? Do you see this vision of glory? This is the word truth. And it is the word of life. And according to God's sovereign eternal plan, you have heard it this morning. So what will you do with it? Which direction will you go? Will you hear it through the lens of self-glory and reject it? Will you pursue self? Or will you receive it and embrace Jesus? Either way, to God be the glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord God, you are, you are glory. You have presented to us your glory and your word, you've revealed it to us. But apart from the movement of your spirit, we are left dumbfounded. And so move supernaturally. Move supernaturally to impart faith. Move supernaturally to grow us in faith. True believing faith. And through it all, would you continue to be glorified as we are blessed. In Christ's name, amen.